0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. <clears throat> we're in a series on Christian worship. If you're new to, if you're new with us today, we're going to well, thank you for coming. This is an interesting passage that you're going to hear today. And um, I've been praying for, particularly for people who are new today. Because um, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and it's about... We're, we're in this series, we're looking at this passage, this series in, in 1 Corinthians, the last half of the book about worship. What is worship all about? And, and what, what does God call us to be as people who worship Him? You know, all worship traditions think that they're the most biblical in how they do worship. And yet, there's so many ways that Christians do worship, aren't there? I believe that we usually find a worship environment that we like, that feels comfortable to us, um, that fits our personality, that fits our, maybe our cultural preference, and then we find some Bible verses to back it up. You know what we do? <laughs> What kinds of behaviors are appropriate in worship? What kind of things happen in worship? What about, what about in prayer? How do you pray? Do you pray kneeling? Like a kneeling bench? Do you pray standing? Do you pray silently? Do you bow your head? Do you all pray together out loud? Do you pray while one person, like Jeff, prays an elder, elder shepherd's prayer and we all pray silently? Do we pray with total non-music or do we pray with music underneath? I've seen it all. What about music? Do, do we sing hymns only or choruses only or instrumental music or not, music with just vocal chords, no, no musical instruments? With Do we do solos like we just heard one? Do we, do we use piano? Do we use organ? There's organ back, 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 back here, by the way, you probably don't see that. Do we have a band or an orchestra? What about dancing to the music? What kind of dancing? There's lots of kinds of dancing in Christian music, you know. What about preaching? Preaching. Do we preach when people, can people say amen and, and, and call response? Or is it just to be quiet and listen and take notes? Should, it, should a sermon be 20 minutes? 40 minutes? 60 minutes? Paul preached one day and until midnight. God fell out the window. Remember that story in Acts? Paul laid hands on them, healed him, and kept, then went back to preaching till morning. Aren't you glad I'm not Paul? <laughs> do you preach with children in the room, or do you let them make them leave because it's too hard for to, them to understand? Do you, do you use visuals? Do you have an altar call at the end all the time? What, what is appropriate? What is normal? What about emotional response in worship? Do we clap? Is it okay to raise hands? Is it okay to weep? Is it okay to laugh? Is it okay to speak in tongues? We'll talk about that later today. What about being slain in the spirit, knocked down flat? What about running around the church? I've seen that. What about this thing called holy barking? I have not seen that. Holy barking, the Toronto Blessing. everybody has expectations about what are good, normal, appropriate practices in worship. And everybody thinks they have biblical warrant for their practices. Some of these decisions are based more on cultural preferences and not on biblical mandates. And and some of that's okay. People are different. What is biblically appropriate? What is culturally appropriate? How, How do we make it particularly in a multi-ethnic, multicultural worship setting, how do we figure out what's allowable, wh- where the boundaries are, what's appropriate? These are big questions that churches wrestle with. Our church has a 38-year his- history of, of wrestling with some of these, these issues, and, 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 and it's a fluid thing. It's, it's a rather fluid thing. We usually feel that the, the highest form of worship Is when there is an atmosphere where we can connect with God and become so caught up into His presence that we forget who we are, where we are, and and, and we just focus on Him. That's a false assumption. What about fellow believers? What about unbelievers? In in 1 Corinthians, we're looking at this in this section, this passage, this series, um, um, our focus is on public worship public worship, and we're seeking to glean some insights that can help us become a congregation that more and more experiences the presence of God in our gatherings each week, where God calls us to gather together. And I believe we do that when we follow the scriptures as best we can, and this section of the New Testament gives us some wonderful principles and guidelines that we need to take to heart and review. Let's face it, most of us get our ideas about what's correct in worship or what we like in public worship from our experience or things we heard about that may sound interesting. But few of us even look at Scripture and ask, what does God's Word have to say about this thing? So we're seeking to do that in this series as we walk through some of these these passages here in the second half of Corinthians. Today, we're going to spend time in chapter 14, which, as I said, is a very challenging passage. It some, the, chapter 14 answers many of these big questions. We're going to spend the next few weeks in chapter 14. Um, today, let, let's read verses 1 to 19, verses 1 to 19 of 1 Corinthians 14. And I want you, as we read, I want you to listen for the words build up, build up, or "upbuild." Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you're saying. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. God's word for us today. My title is The Goal of Our Gathering. The Goal of Our Gathering. Why do we gather? You know, we, we tend to do what, what is natural without thinking about other people. That's our default. We don't really think about others. And that can be our problem when we come to worship, especially in a diverse setting we've talked about it in this series. But I want you to understand that when we gather for public worship, we're to gl- we glorify God by thinking of others. We glorify God by thinking of others. And as you've heard, this text talks about some controversial things, such as the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy. And going verse by verse through these chapters forces me to have to tackle some of these controversial topics. And when we get beyond the controversies that have been associated with these spectacular, extraordinary gifts, and you boil it down to the bare bones, you know what this passage is about? Communication. About communication, the text is about verbal communication during public worship, and Paul has laid the groundwork by discussing the fact in chapter twelve that God gives us people a variety of gifts, and and we should seek to lovingly express those gifts. Love chapter thirteen, lovingly express those gifts. Chapter thirteen about divine love, agape love, the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans five. The love that Christ gives to his people by faith. The love that is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love. The love that should govern the attitude and the perspective that we bring to the gift discussion. That's why we have chapter 13 before chapter 14. Paul's setting us up. (laughs) He's saying, before I get into this controversial stuff, I want to say, love must reign. See, the Spirit's fruit of love is more, much more important than the Spirit's gifts. You say it again. The fruit of the Spirit is more important than the gifts of the Spirit in our lives. We don't get that backwards. So in this passage, you see, Paul seeks to downplay the tongue's gift, which apparently the Corinthians thought was the best, highest gift. He calls for a kind of public communication that's understandable by all, that builds up believers, and that points unbelievers even to hear and see and experience Jesus. So, as we gather in public worship, Paul urges us to remember three things. Here's my outline. The priority of prophecy over tongues, verses 1 to 3. The priority of edification or building up as the ultimate goal, verses 4 to 12. And the priority, finally, in verses 13 and 19, of understandability, I'm gonna use that word, the, the, of understandability, which shows respect to outsiders. The priority of prophecy, the priority of edification, the priority of understandability. First, <clears throat> the first three verses. <clears throat> so, communications in tongues is allowable, he says, but communication in, through prophecy is preferable. Look at what he says. He says, Pursue love, reminding of what he's just talked about in chapter 13. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may prophesy. Paul is addressing their problem and the problem of many people. They think that speaking in tongues is a sign of great spiritual maturity. No, love is. Love is. The fruit of the Spirit is is the measure of maturity in our lives. (laughs) In verses two and three, he compares tongues and prophecy and clearly says that prophecy is more important. Tongues speaking only to God, but prophecy edifies, encourages, consoles people. We'll look later at prophecy in, in, in the passage. But let's first talk about tongues. In the book of Acts, in the New Testament, tongues comes on the scene. The day of Pentecost. 120 believers in Christ are there. The, gospel, they came, the Spirit fell on them and, and they spoke the, the the gospel in foreign languages to the people gathered in Jerusalem. The New Testament church was birthed. Many know that that was the reversing of the, of the curse of Babel, the Tower of Babel, when God brought scattered the people and brought languages. This was a, a reverse of Babel. God is now not scattering. He's uniting, and He's uniting. He uses language and communication to show uh, unity. Yet it was a unity with diversity. They spoke the same message, but in different languages, a unity with diversity. See, but but in, in, in the New Testament, the people of God are no longer confined to a specific group now, no to, to ethnic Israel, to one language, to Aramaic or Hebrew. No, the doors of the church are now open, <laughs> wide open for the nations to enter in, just as I am, without one plea. I don't want to be Jewish. Just as I am, we enter in to the grace of God. and And, and so... God used the gift of tongues to do that in Acts, in an early church, the first part of the church. Now, prior to the 1960s, um, the gift of tongues was relegated to seasons of awakening in our country, where revivals would happen, and, and awakenings, the, the, probably most famous was Azusa Street Revival. I've talked about that before, in the early 1900s, early 20th century. Out of Azusa Street Revivals in California came a, a list of denominations, that really promoted the gift of tongues as a very, very important part of one's life in Christ. In fact, many said you could not have Christ unless you had that, that particular gift. And uh, most denominations basically put them aside as... The, 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 the common phrase was those are the holy rollers. The holy rollers. We thought they were more holy because they had an experience in, the, in the emotional worship. Holy rollers was, is the phrase that was often used... Uh, until in the 60s, something happened inside of denominations. <laughs> the Holy Rollers became part of what was happening in the churches, and they said, oh, we've got to take a second look at this. And uh, e- even the Roman Catholic Church, there was a movement called the Catholic Charismatics, where the, where they, where the Holy Spiritual gifts became normative in some of these congregations. Now, in the days of my youth, again, many of you know I grew up at a, a Baptist church in D.C., and in that church, there was lots, lots, lots of emotion. Many of the, the, the worship practices that I talked about, I've seen in the church that I grew up. Um, shouting, great emotion, great, great ability to be quiet as well, but lots of shouting. Um, they call it getting happy, getting the Holy Ghost. Lots of enthusiasm, lots of congregational feedback and amen. The preachers would hoop, which is a cultural way of ending a sermon in a black church. Uh, the, the, there was, but it was all in English. That was really Ebonics, but that's English. Too. It's a kind of English. The black oral tradition. I and mean, I grew up in that. And, and I often say, how, how could you have a church that has such, all the, the, so many of those elements in one worship service? Well, the worship service took three hours long. <laughs> so you had time to fit it all in. <laughs> I went to Frostburg. I uh, was involved in university uh, campus ministry, and I first learned about the charismatic movement, and and, and, the, and what called, some would call the charismatic charismatic chaos. And one Friday night at our large group gathering, we had we we invited a guest speaker who was actually an alumni from our our university chapter, and he, had, he we didn't realize that he had become very very fanatical in his understanding of the charismatic gifts and he wanted to promote that in his message, and he did that, and it caused a lot of confusion, uh, uh, not just in our group, but over the whole campus. And for the next, really, for, the, for months after that, it, it, it was really the talk among the believers. What do you think, you know, everybody had to take sides. What do you think about this Holy Spirit experience? What do you, yes or no, pro or con, is it good or bad? And I, and I remember, I, 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 I soaked up a whole lot of books, and I still have one book that, I, that was called Let's quit fighting about the Holy Spirit. And uh, There was a book, and I saw it on, uh, uh, at the bookstore, I said, yeah, that's the one I want to read. I read it. It didn't stop the fight, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> but you know what, I was thinking about this. Now, nowadays Christians argue and fight over a lot of things, but they're more basic things. Christians argue sometimes about, is the Bible true? and. I wish we could go back to the days when we believed the Bible was true and we argued about things like this. How do I interpret the Bible? Oh, for those days when we believed God's Word. And I pray that you believe God's Word, that you're here, and and, and the Word of God is is precious to you. Paul gives us a strong caution here. He acknowledges the authenticity of of this experience, but he's very quick to give great caution regarding its usage in public worship. Do you see that in the text? Prayer in the Spirit it seems to be prayer in tongues, and he calls it uttering mysteries to God, not to people. People can't understand what is being uttered. Now, this is consistent with our church's application of this. We want public communication that builds up the body rather than just dis- public display of tongues. Now, whether you're the one who believes that this gift is still valid, maybe even you use this gift... Uh, Um, We believe that it's no longer a gift that is needed for public. Our public words are to be spoken with a clear purpose so that others can be built up in their faith. So we worship in the primary language of the gathered people. That was the principle of the Reformation, by the way. They called it uh, worship in the vernacular, the vernacular language of the people. Uh, You know the, the, the Roman Catholic Mass was in Latin, remember that? No, the, the Reformation said, no, worship in the language of the people, which is what we seek to do. You, you might notice that sometimes we do in, in, in some of the songs, we have songs that are in different languages, but we always put the translation of what, what those words mean. That's important. The priori- priority, you see, is, is a, a prophecy. Over tongues is what Paul has talked about in these first three verses. He's going, now, let's, the second thing is the priority of edification, of building up the body, verses 4 to 12. <clears throat> see, communication that edifies or builds up me is allowable, but communication that edifies us is preferable. Let see it again. Communication that, that builds up me is okay, but communication that edifies All of us. That's what's to be preferred in public worship. And so in verses 4 to 12, he talks about that. He speaks of prophecy. In verse three, he called prophecy upbuilding or encouragement or consolation. And six times in the text, he talks about this idea of building up the saints. Now seems to say that tongues, when it's interpreted, is helpful. It's as helpful as prophecy can be. Why? Because with an interpretation something's being communicated that can build people up, that can edify other people. Let's talk about the gift of prophecy some. We'll talk about more in a few weeks. But in the Old Testament, there was the gift of prophecy by the prophets, the predictive prophecy, predictive prophecy, telling the future, um, God giving a prophet divine knowledge about what was to take place under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And Deuteronomy 18 is an important passage. It says if the things that the prophet says going to happen didn't happen. You know what the penalty was? He was to die. So it's pretty important that it's pretty important that what you said happened was going to happen if you're a prophet. Then it was there. There was the declarative element of prophecy where it was just speaking forth, declaring authoritative declarations. Thus saith the Lord, as the Spirit gave unction. In the New Testament, gift of prophecy, the apostles, of course or replacements for the Old Testament prophets. They were the agents of divine revelation. And, and um, <clears throat> again, there's predictive prophecy. We see the New Testament writers giving predictive prophecy, just like the Old Testament writers did. There's less of it, but there's some. But there were also other prophets who seemed to be more local in particular and fulfilled a temporary function in the infant church. And then there, was, there was this dec- declarative prophecy uh, as well. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said, he quoted Joel chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the church so that men and women would have prophetic gifts that would prophesy. We saw in 1 Corinthians 11, a few weeks ago, that women were told that when they prophesied, they should have their heads covered. Later in chapter 14, we're going to see that the elders have the responsibility of evaluating or weighing the messages of the prophets. 1 Thessalonians 5 calls it the testing of the prophecy. We'll see that later as we get into this uh, chapter 14 in a few weeks. An example of this predictive prophecy that being evaluated or tested, I believe, is in Acts chapter 21. I think I have that verse here for you, that passage. Let me read this passage. This, on the next day we, this is Luke and Paul and the, the traveling team. We departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, one of the seven deacons from chapter six of Acts, and stayed with him. He, meaning Philip, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, so women were prophesying. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Interesting that there's a a glimpse of them weighing or evaluating this prophetic message. Corinthians, we'll see later in Corinthians, there's, a, there's an evaluation of, of prophetic messages that took place. So in, in what sense the, uh, were the New Testament prophets ministering the word of God? They had special prophetic gifts in the early New Testament, and they were essential because the early church lacked something that we do have now, and that's a full Bible. They did not have a full Bible yet. Back in chapter 13, Paul said the prophecy would pass away. Now we have a full Bible. We're sanctified by the truth of God, John 17. Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. However, for the entire New Testament era, God has gifted preachers who still do have this declarative gift, of pro- this prophetic declarative gift, the proclamation of the good news about Christ by men of God who have been especially anointed and especially appointed by God to preach the, the good news of Christ just as the Old Testament prophets preached, looking forward to Christ we preach looking back to what Christ has done to explain what Christ has done and give it contemporary application. But Paul's point even in this transitional phase where prophecy is passing away is that the purpose of tongues of interpretation of prophecy the purpose of it all is still edification building up of one another. Now just a, a caution, I, I do not believe that revelation is continuing, I hope you understand that. I don't believe that, that God is still giving continuing revelation. One of the, the issues that happened to me when I became ordained in, in our denomination was that the way I explained my position on this, I flunked the first time because they said, no, 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 you believe in continuing revelation, go back and study it some more. So I went back and studied it some more, and then I explained it in a way that, that they okay, we now, now, you do believe that, 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 that the Bible is complete, so so if, if, you're, if you're thinking that, I, that I'm talking about a continuing revelation, a continuing, that the, the, the canon of Scripture is still open, that is not what I'm seeing. Paul uses a great illustration in the passage in verses 7 and following, it's, he uses illustration of a bugle, a bugle. In the military, a trumpet has distinct sounds to communicate distinct things. Maybe you've been to a military funeral and you've, you've heard taps. Okay, that, when you hear taps, you know that someone, it means something. It, that, there's meaning to those notes. Uh, the trumpet blows in a battle. A particular sound means for the troops to retreat. Other notes mean that the troops are to advance. And Paul, Paul is saying that there's the, that communication. Goes, not, it's not just noise, it's communication because people understand it. Because it's understanding that's important. Nonverbal communication in church, music, instrumental music, art, drama, the Lord's Supper, these are, are, are aids to our worship, but they never can stand alone. There must be meaning given through, through words, through communication. Now, communication for the purpose of edifying and encouraging others, um, uh, pointing someone to, everyone to Jesus as the only hope in a fallen world is what we should be doing. Someone has said we're we're to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, pointing people to Jesus Christ. Now in the text, Paul acknowledges that in the public worship of a healthy church, there will be people who are at various stages of maturity, various stages of understanding Jesus and belief in Jesus. So he moves on to the, this, what I, what is my third point here, which is very brief, because he's going to talk more about this in the next paragraph, which we'll look at next week. And this is the priority of understandability, this understandability not just for those who are, who are believers, but to what he calls outsiders, uninitiated, the outsiders. Communication is to be done in the local language because of the awareness of outsiders. So the purpose of communication in public worship is not so that that the one communicating can can feel good or even be taken up by the Spirit or have angelic, ecstatic experiences. No, that's not the purpose. The purpose of public communication is to edify others, and that's not just believers. So Paul goes on. Verse 16, he calls these people outsiders. Points to what I would call the principle of, of understandability. It should be understandable to those who are outside. Visitors, friends, family, visitors, you know, those who, who don't understand the Christian faith, who don't understand what it means to worship Jesus Christ, but are invited and should be invited. Or new people, there should be something, there probably should be some things that you don't understand, but there should be some things you do understand. It shouldn't be total mis- miscommunication going on. Now, I, I believe in the background here, what Paul has is the, the mystery religions of his day, the Roman and Greek mystery religions where there was ecstatic, emotional experience from the pagan cults of his day that were really out of hand, and Paul says, no, no, our, our, our services aren't to be like that. The, the, the person who comes from outside should understand something about the presence of God and the Word of God in, in, your, in our gatherings. Now, this principle of understandability gives us permission, though, to have concern, sincere concern for those who are in the room in a worship setting who, who have not become to Christ yet. We should expect them to enter in, and that's good. But that being said, we have to look at this entire text and make several assumptions and several statements. Personally connecting with God in your own way as you experience public worship is important but it's not the primary goal. Being attractive to unbelievers, as important as that is, is not the primary goal. This text, Paul is saying to us over and over and over again, the primary reason we gather is to edify one another in the faith. To encourage one another in the faith. To build up one another in the faith. That's primary. Very important. Colossians chapter 3 and... Ephesians chapter 5, a very interesting passage, where Paul, in both those passages, has very similar chains of thought. In, in Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Ephesians 5, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The word of Christ, be filled with the Spirit. And then he, he tells what happens when, you're, when the word of Christ dwells richly or when you're filled with the Spirit, which are really basically the same thing. What happens? Look at the next, look what happens. They're, they're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with faithfulness in your hearts to God. You see that? And that is, it, it, it's songs that we sing to God, but look at what he said. We are admonishing one another. In Ephesians, we are addressing one another Do you see that? Yes, we sing, we come, we sing songs to God. Yes, we raise our hands to the Lord because he is worthy to be praised, but there's also something happening between us as we do that together. There's something something about worship among God's people that is unique and spiritual that can't happen when you're worshiping in the privacy of your home in your prayer closet. Something more happens. In our relationships, and in, in our sanctity, in our growth in grace, when we do it together. Now, again, it starts with a melody in our hearts, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yes, it's to God, but psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we can talk more about the various types of songs. But we don't have time to do that, but it's not just psalms, it's not just hymns, it's not just spiritual songs. It's 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 it's, it's all these things together. Well. <clears throat> One of the things I said earlier is that every church develops a, church, a culture of what's normative and acceptable in worship, right? We at Faith, uh, a Christian fellowship, uh, we're here, and, and often people think we're a non-denominational church. We are not. Surprise. We're a Presbyterian church. Now, Presbyterians are often called the chosen frozen, The reputation that we have is that Presbyterians have a faith that is well thought out, but not a faith that displays much emotion publicly. At faith, we try to move away from that stereotype. We encourage the lifting of hands and singing amen. Amen? (laughs) Amen. We sing more than hymns. (laughs) Amen to that. I know that for some of you who grew up in very tight experiences, this is freeing. For some of you who grew up in very tight experiences, this is not freeing. I know for some of you who grew up in very very free experiences, this isn't free enough. You're all, you're all, this, is a very, this is a diverse church, we know that. Some of you wish there was more enthusiasm and more joy. Well, we are what we are. We're what God has made us. We hope that the mood and the style and the, the worship environment that is here does justice to the Bible-believing church's responsibility to be the church in Penn, Lucy, Baltimore, and the world that embraces all people, that embraces the nations. This is a big challenge. As we walk through this great worship chapter we're gonna we're gonna see four biblical principles that that the pastor Craig from the beginning has has put as the four goals of worship let me put them on the, up here on the screen right here the four goals of our worship with faith are to glorify God to give him the glory because he alone deserves the glory second to exalt Jesus Christ a Christian worship service must be Christocentric it, it, this is not a synagogue We believe that Christ came and died for our sins and rose again and lives in heaven and he is alive and he lives within us. The third thing is is, that the the worship is to edify or build up believers. That's That's what this passage is pounding for us. And the fourth thing is that a worship service should attract seekers. That's what we'll talk about next week because the passage moves us in that direction. Attracts seekers. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Some have said, doesn't Romans 3 say that no one seeks after God? Yes, Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. And we believe that because we believe the scriptures. We also believe John chapter 6, where Jesus said that no one can come to me, to the Father, unless he's drawn. So we believe that God is drawing those who don't seek God. God is drawing them and they're becoming seekers of God. So we also believe Isaiah 55, where the encouragement is to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's our God. And he is planting it within hearts of people all over the world, all over Baltimore, all over Penn he's planted within a a hunger, a desire, that they may know their Creator and be forgiven of all their sins. We're here because that's happened to us, and we're rejoicing because that's happened to us. Are you here today and do you feel drawn to God? Maybe you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but there's something about this atmosphere or something about the friend who invited you that, that has created within you a thirst, a hunger, a desire. Know God more deeply. Romans 9 says that if we can believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised from the dead, then we can be saved. And that's, that's what we've experienced. And so if in your heart you trust Jesus Christ, do that. And we, have, we talk each week about the, um, the, the, the prayer room. That room is there if you, if you want to confess in your mouth to someone that you have just believed in Jesus Christ. Talk, you want to talk to somebody, talk to someone who brought you, or talk to someone in the prayer room. Jesus Christ is a Savior and the Lord, and He invites all of us to come. <laughs> whether we've been coming for years or whether we've just been thinking about coming, come. That's why we have this Lord's Table, because we're all the same, you see. We're invited to come, come to his table, and come and find grace. If you never trusted him, if you never trusted Christ, as, we, as the elements go by, pray. Ask God to make himself more and more real to you, that you would be able to trust with all your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, give yourself to him. He died on a cross that you might have life. And that's why we're here. <laughs> Not here because we're something special. We're here because he's special, and he's died for us, that we might have eternal life with him. This is the the, the Lord's table. It was instituted by the Lord on the night in which he, he, before he died, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken. If you do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, that Passover cup, and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. The new covenant, shed for the remission of sins, the sins he was going to, uh, pay for that very next day. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or announce his death till he comes again. Let's ask officers to come forward, those who've been designated, as we continue. This this table is, is for those who, who, who love Christ and who are repentant of their sins and in fellowship with God and his church and, 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 and want to receive the grace that is there, that is here in these elements. it God give you a greater sense of, of his love for you, and of your forgiveness. It's for those who say, I need it, <laughs> who are sinners, and say, I need the blood of Christ to continually cleanse me of my sins." If that's you, even if you're not a member of our church, but you understand the elements and understand the gospel, please feel free to partake of these elements. But if you, if you don't know Christ, and you're confused about all this, then we ask you to pause it. Don't, just let the elements pass by, but pray. Pray that God would clarify in your mind and your heart what it means to simply follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your King. And maybe next time you'll be able to say, I'm a child of God, I can partake of these elements. Let me give you a chance to pray. The scriptures say, let a man examine himself. Do that for just a second. Examine your heart.